Welcome back everyone to Plum Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. And today I have a very special guest with me. Drum roll please, because, oh boy, I have the very esteemed Dr. Nirbe Jane with me, a fourth year plastic surgery resident, otherwise known as my younger brother. And also known as the superior Dr. J. Oh boy, I guess we can go with the other Dr. J. I guess I can live with that. Thanks for having me. Now, as a plastic surgery resident, I know most of your time is usually taken up with beautifying the already beautiful, but isn't there another side to the plastic surgery world? Yeah, people almost always have the wrong idea about plastic surgery and think that it's only cosmetic stuff like Botox and facelifts and BBLs. In reality, plastic surgery is a lot more than that. We do a lot of work with cleft palates and cleft lips, reconstructing animal bites, post-surgical reconstruction, and then my particular interest, hand and nerve trauma reconstruction. Yeah, I imagine most people had no idea plastics had so much variety. I even didn't know about it until you started your residency. What exactly about nerve trauma is it that interests you? It's just really fascinating, the detailed anatomy and the technical aspect. Okay, well, I think that's enough about you. No one's really that interested. Let's get into today's topic. So when I had asked you to be on the podcast, I think we both thought a great topic that traversed the critical care world and the plastics world was the topic of burns and burn management. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic that everyone in a critical care setting should know about, even if you aren't in a burn center, because you never know who's going to come through your doors. All right, so let's get started. I think the best way to think about burns is to talk about classifying them. Right, so how do you classify burns? Wait, I thought this was my podcast. Not anymore. Okay, great. Um, Okay, coming from someone who doesn't deal with them that much, I can tell you, I know we've got first degree, second degree, and third degree. Right, and that's actually still how the billers look at burns. But the way a burn center will look at it would be superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness, which is basically how deep into uh, the skin a burn goes. So a superficial burn is basically just the epidermis. The dermis is intact. Uh, This is like a sunburn. A partial thickness burn is into the dermis, but not all the way through the dermis. And really a partial thickness comes in two different flavors. Mm -hmm. There's a superficial partial thickness burn which is into the papillary dermis, um, which is the superficial part of the dermis. And then there's a deep partial thickness uh, burn, which involves part of the reticular dermis. And then a full thickness burn or a third degree burn is the entire thickness of the skin is gone. And this is actually really important in determining how we manage burns. Um, The superficial burns and superficial partial thickness burns Mm -hmm. typically heal on their own. Okay. And then deep partial thickness is kind of that in-between. Typically, if they haven't healed after a few weeks, they're going to need some kind of debridement and reconstruction. Okay. But full thickness burns always need surgery and reconstruction. So let me ask you this, you know, for the people listening, say you burn yourself, at what point should you go and seek attention? Or at what point can you say, you know what, I can manage this at home? So it depends what the burn looks like. Um, Do you think a a deeper burn is more or less painful? So I know this is a trick question. Most people, lay people would say it was more painful, but because I would imagine your nerve endings are 
essentially burned, it's going to be less painful. Right. A full thickness of burn is insensate. So if you have a full thickness burn, it looks just like leathery skin. And mm -hmm. this is in leathery skin you get from a tanning salon. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of the first thing to look at when you have a burn come in is what, what type of burn is it? If you can, if you have bleeding tissue mm -hmm. at the base of it, probably superficial. If it blanches, that means if okay. you press on it and it turns white and then you let go and it fills right back up with some kind of red sure. blood underneath it, that means the dermis is pretty intact, which means that it's most likely a superficial burn. Something that blisters mm -hmm. with weeping fluid mm -hmm. also tends to be more superficial. Okay. Um, if you have, you can see really close in there, you can see around where the hair follicles are, a little dermal budding. Mm -hmm. Those are also partial thickness burns as they're not full thickness burns. Okay. Even that that's that uh, deep partial thickness burn is kind of like um, this. It's kind of hard to determine about a deep partial thickness burn. And that's where appropriate burn management really comes into play. Now, I think your other part of the question is asking when do you go to a burn center? Is that right? Yes, exactly. Because for a lot of the people listening, you know, we're, we're majority of us, I think, are not people who routinely manage burns. So mm -hmm. I think the questions, the really two important questions that we want to be able to answer after today's uh, discussion is when my patient walks in through the door of the ER or comes up to the unit and they have a burn, one, when do I know how, when to transfer this patient and specifically how would that burn center, what initial things should I do to get them to that burn center in terms of management? Okay, so the second part's the easiest part, stabilizing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you all know critical care medicine better than I ever would, so you know how to stabilize a patient. And that's always the first question you should ask before even initiating the transfer protocol to a burn center, is that is this patient stable to be transferred? You don't want to send somebody to the burn center and then have them come there on three pressers, bag masks, and needing shocks right when they enter the unit. That's never a good situation. Right. Um, in terms of what are some of the like the indications for transfer, the helpful guides from the American Burn Association. Um, and really, as one of my attendings put it when I was rotating through uh, one of the biggest burn units on the West Coast, uh, was that people who need to go to the burn center are big burns, mm -hmm. young burns, so children and sure. uh, babies with burns. Old burns, okay. Sick burns, uh, deep burns, so third degree burns, okay. Extremity burns, so hands, feet, face, genitalia, and then weird burns. So burns caused by weird issues, electrical burns, big chemical burns, okay. things like that. So like occupational exposures. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of those you think it's occupational. A lot of those happen at home too. Okay, good to know. Um, and then, of course, inhalational injury is also yes. part of that. Yep. Um, I guess you can put them under extremity burns. So, you know, I want to pause here for a second. And this may come up later in your discussion about how to manage burns initially. Um, but you mentioned about stabilizing patients. One thing, one point I think we should touch on is when these burn patients come and they come in shock, obviously, you know, for any patient in shock, we always think about IV fluid resuscitation. Now, I know from my med school days, there's a little something called the Parkland formula. Can you delve into that a little bit and talk about how that relates to how we should resuscitate these patients? Sure. Um, so what kind of shock are these burn patients in? So probably I would think because you've lost all that essentially skin 
and you're you have all these insensible losses, it probably equates to a hypovolemic shock. Yeah, mainly hypovolemic. There is an element of distributive shock because they have all this capillary leakage sure. of fluid in the periphery because of the damaged blood vessels. But yes, basically your volume down. So the Parkland formula was uh, developed at Parkland uh, Hospital, which is the big county hospital in Dallas. Okay. Um, and it's how we, in general, kind of work to resuscitate birds. So the formula is four mils per kg mm-hmm. times the patient's body weight. Okay. Times the percentage of total burn surface area of second and third degree burns. Okay. So now the question is, how do we estimate total burn surface right. area? So in general, you use what's called the rule of nines. Okay. So the way I like to think about it is each arm is nine. Okay. Okay. So your left arm is nine. Your right arm is nine. Each leg is 18. So those are two nines. Leg meaning your uh, from lower, from your hip, hip down. down. Okay. Hip down. So upper and lower leg. Okay. So that gives you a total of six nines, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have your front torso is two more nines. Mm-hmm. Your back torso is two more nines. Okay. And your face is another nine. That gives you 11 nines, which is 99% of your total body surface area. There's 1% for the genitalia, mm-hmm. and that's it. So if we were to just, you know, put an example to it, if you had someone who came in with, say, a burn, a second degree burn on their left calf and their right arm, that would be two, two nines. And so the right arm is 9%. Mm-hmm. Left calf alone, mm-hmm. like that, so remember, the whole leg is, is 18%. Okay. So the back of the leg is 9%. Okay. So the calf alone would probably be about 2 to 3%. I see. Okay. So you would take those areas where they were burning at that percentage up together. Correct. So say, you know, the way the Parkland formula works, it's 4 times your weight times that TBSA percent. Sure. For second and third degree burns only. Throw it any first degree. Okay. It's only second and third. And that's a total amount of cc's of fluid you should get in the first 24 hours. Okay, so if my burn patient comes into my ICU, I will calculate the percentage area that they have that second degree or third degree burn Mm -hmm. by that coefficient in their body weight. And then based on that, I'll know, okay, they need X amount of milliliters in that first 24 hours. Correct. But then the question is, how do you divide that up? Okay. So you get half of that volume the first eight hours okay and the other half in the next 16 hours and this is time from burn this is not time the, the clock starts time from burn not time from arrival i see so if somebody comes in two hours after their burn and say that they need let's say they need uh for easy amount say four thousand cc's of fluid sure in that first hour so four liters of fluid mm-hmm. that's what the math comes out to that means and that means two liters in eight hours two liters in the next 16 hours got right? it so if they come in three hours after their burn and haven't got any fluid, they still should get that two liters in that five-hour period. Got it. That's 400 cc's an hour. So a lot of fluid. Now, yeah. the question I have is that say I've fulfilled that Parkland formula and I'm giving them the appropriate amount of fluid. If they're still hypotensive or essentially in shock at that point, is there a role for any further fluid resuscitation or am I moving to vasopressors? So that's, that's a good question. Really, what what most modern burn centers use, Parkland form is a little bit outdated in terms of being strict to those numbers. Mm-hmm. What we initially used was using the Parkland formula to set the initial 
flow rate and then okay. transition pretty quickly to tracking by urine output. Okay. So all the other measures, uh, you know, looking at heart rate, looking at blood pressure, those aren't the most accurate for burn patients because burn patients have a systemic dysautonomia. Okay. So those things are kind of all, all over the place, especially the heart rate. A lot of patients end up on propranolol to help control sure. the heart rate so they're not hypermetabolic. Okay. Um, but burn patients, the best way to track their actual resuscitation, just look at their urine output. So where I did my burn work, every hour mm -hmm. they would check the urine output. If it met between 0.5 and 1 cc per kg, they would keep the fluids where they are. Okay. If not, they'd go up 10%, or if it was too high, it would go down 10%. Because if you don't want to over-resuscitate, because right. of risk of abdominal compartment syndrome. Right, absolutely. But I think one thing we always got to remember the burn patients is that these are traumas mm -hmm. and need to have a full trauma workup okay, when so they arrive. Tell me about that. So that means going to the primary and secondary survey. Okay. So the ABCDEs of trauma, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, mm -hmm. and then exposure. Okay. And then secondary survey, the full head-to-toe exam in the ER when they arrive. Okay. So you should not you should not have let these patients get to the ICU without a full uh, full trauma survey. And if they do get to the ICU without the trauma survey, then your trauma team or general surgery team should be called to evaluate them to make sure that no other injuries are missed. Now, along with all of that, is there a role to immediately start antibiotics in these patients? No. Okay, so we don't ever do prophylactic. No. Most burn patients, I know there's a thought that since you lose, you know, your outer skin right. barrier, they're more likely to get antibiotics. But if you have good wound care, mm -hmm. most burn patients do not develop burn cellulitis. The most common infection in burn patients is actually pneumonia. Okay. Prolonged intubation. Okay. While they're recovering. Well, from... exactly. Okay. It's, it's mostly uh, VAP that they get, not burn cellulitis. Okay. So we've talked about fluid resuscitation. We talked about that primary and secondary survey. We talked about that antibiotics really aren't indicated unless you have an actual infection you are treating. What other sort of things happen when we are initially managing a burn patient? So I think the other thing that is especially critical for non-burn surgeons or patient mm -hmm. people who treat, take care of burns quite a bit is managing the airway. Okay. Um, so like, what are some things you can think of that are signs of uh, inhalational injury? So that's actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because as a intensivist, inhalational injury is something we are always on the lookout for in the appropriate patient. In fact, I had a patient a few months ago who, <laughs> the story is a little interesting. He, um, had just been released from jail and then he had had something personal happen to him. I think his girlfriend broke up with him. So he decided to get drunk and burn his house down. Probably, story. probably not the best way to cope, but that was his coping mechanism. So of course he came into us, um, uh, short of breath, you know, after this house fire and what we look for as intensivists when we are thinking about inhalational injury and the need to intubate someone is anytime we see any evidence of soot or that sort of smoky leftover evidence around their nares or in their throat, you have to do a good um, uh, throat exam. If you see any evidence of that soot there, if you see any pharyngeal swelling, all of those are indications to go ahead and put that tube in because you don't know what further edema could be down below. So it's, it's, I mean, the patient could be telling you, oh, I'm fine. I feel fine, but it's more of a precaution than anything else. Yeah, that that's probably the best way to practice on the initial evaluation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, depending on your level of experience with burn patients, you know, we would use to observe them for up to 24 hours after there was concern for an airway injury, if there wasn't an obvious airway injury. If somebody who has a firework blow up in their face or something like that. Okay. With their facial burn. So yeah, so it's singed, nip, singed nose hair, yep. or singed eyebrows. Yep. Those are the kinds of things you look for. Um, if there wasn't like obvious pharyngeal swelling or tonsil mm-hmm. swelling stood at the back of the airway, then we would just go ahead and just observe them in the ICU. Okay. With the understanding that if they start to develop swelling, strider, wheezing, something like that, we would just go ahead and intubate. Now, anybody who came in with air, with airway injury and already intubated would always get a bronch. And I, that's exactly what we do as well, because you have to look and see how much airway damage and involvement there is, and if there's any tracheal injuries or bronchial injuries because of mm-hmm. all of that inhalation. And if there's soot or some other kind of debris in the airway to try to suction it out. Correct. And take a BAL. Correct. Um, or bronchial washing mm-hmm. um, to try to diagnose. Yep. So actually, this is where I did all my bronchs. Oh, you've done Bronx. I have done Bronx. How many? Five. You got a long way to go, young Padawan. It's okay. We'll catch you up there. All right. So anything else we need to talk about in terms of management for the intensivist as far yeah, as burn patients? I think there's one other thing to talk about in terms of managing the airway. Okay. It's kind of vent management. All right. So burn patients tend to like low peep. Okay. I mean, low O2 also, but low PEEP especially because you don't put too much stress on the alveoli. And also, sure. uh, since their fluid system's all out of whack, mm-hmm. you don't want to cause any kind of decreased uh, preload. Okay. And the other thing is that um, something that I don't know how often you check when you're in the ICU, but not the surgical ICU, I never check before extubating is a cuff leak. That now really, it used to be done all the time before any sort of extubation. We don't really use it anymore except... In cases of angioedema, um, that's a great time to do it. And then, of course, your burn patients, because you, again, don't know how much injury there is. You want to be 100% sure that that patient's ready to be extubated. Exactly. You don't want to extubate somebody and then have the airway collapse right down there because the airway was stenting open, the tube was stenting open the airway, and there really isn't enough enough, uh, flexibility in the airway to allow for passage of air. And also, then these patients become even more difficult airways. And then then they get crashed right exactly and that's, that's i mean a it's a situation it's fun for us as proceduralists but probably not good for not the patient situation yeah and then then i think that's that's most of the of the actual icu so portion of it i mean you get patients who are they're tachycardic at baseline they're hypermetabolic right. their pressures kind of go up and down they're on a whole bunch of drugs midodrin and do you you mentioned propranolol do you find that you often put patients on propranolol anybody with a major burn that's like an, that's an automatic essentially at some at the point when after they're resuscitated by the urine output if their heart rate is getting mm-hmm. better they put them for panel to help blunt their metabolic because response. of the dis, dysautonomia and it's basically their their body gets kicked into fully catabolic state mm-hmm. so you're trying to slow down and control their entire metabolic system you get put an oxandranolone to help an anabolic okay an anabolic state right so that's that's the issue here is that burns trigger the body to try to break down the dead tissue and turns into cat- catabolism mm-hmm. but that catabolism comes systemic i see okay um instead of being focused on that one area because such a wide surface mm-hmm. area it's so interesting that you guys use propranolol uh, for that dysautonomia we actually use it in the neurointensive unit for um psh or a paroxysmal sympathetic hyperstimulation uh, syndrome after anoxic encephalopathy. So that's that's 
and it's crazy to think even before critical care fellowship, I think really most people only use or think of propranolol for use as, you know, for blood pressure, like anxiety disorder. And it's, it's a pretty amazing drug. So tell me, um, we talked about, you know, classifying burns. When do you transfer patients over to a burn center? How do you initially manage them? What are some sequelae or complications that me as the intensivist, say I have a patient who recently had a burn, I'm treating them for something else, but you know, he has this complicating factor of this third degree burn. How, what do I have to watch out for? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just burn cellulitis. Okay. Um, that's a huge thing. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you have a patient with it because they get very cellulitic. Mm-hmm. And then you treat aggressively antibiotics. Involving the surgical team at your hospital early okay. is better in case they need debridement of the infected tissue. Um, the other thing is just understand that burn physiology, post-burn physiology is just, it's different than pre-burn physiology. That somebody who's tachycardic in the 120s may not need resuscitation at that point, that their, their fluid balance may be perfectly okay. Um, so then tell me, as someone who doesn't manage burns routinely, at what point am I going to look at that patient's vitals and say, this is not okay? Am I going back to that urine output or their heart rates or blood pressures where you say, you know, enough is enough? I, the way I would, I would look at it would be if their MAP's fine and the urine's fine, mm-hmm. then I would trust that their fluid balance is okay. okay. And again, some of this stuff only applies, to, you only will see in patients with major burns, at which point they should be transferred to a burn center. Mm-hmm. But if they're complicating factors, transfer sure. bed doesn't have anything yeah. open, or transport's getting laid and you're just stuck ma- managing these patients until you're able to transfer, mm-hmm. That that's I think the biggest thing. The other thing is early feeding, always important. Okay. Right? These are big wounds. Um, you want to make sure they have good feeding. Uh, That's a really good point because people have a, a misconception that they're so sick that, you know, that we should wait to feed them. And I, I assume enteral nutrition enteral is preferred nutrition, here. Everybody gets a job off on okay. arrival. Everybody gets started on tube feeds. There's a formula called the Curare formula, okay. which is what you would use. I believe it's 25 times your... Uh, kilograms plus 40 times your TBSA and that gives you your total caloric need per day. Okay. And then you can use that to get your tube feeds up to where they want to be. Um, what, what else? You mentioned wound care wound earlier. Care, yes. So say for say wound care went home for the day. Silvadine. Silvadine. <laughs> so Silvadine is always a safe thing. Um, okay. Silver is an antimicrobial. It's easy to put on, it's cheap, all hospitals have it. Okay. There are fancier initial dressings. One favorite one is using a mix of Santil and Vosh, mm-hmm. but Vosh isn't available everywhere and Santil can be expensive. Yeah, Santil I've heard, but I haven't heard of Vosh. Vosh is basically taken, but a little okay. bit softer. Okay. Um, but Silvidine. If you aren't sure, put Silvidine on it before okay. they go see a wound care specialist. Okay, so I gotta ask you, do you have any wild burn stories that you can share with us? None that I probably should share. Oh boy, that that tells me that there's something more. That we'll have to talk about it next time. Um, this was, I thought, a great discussion. I think that you know it was great that we were able to get together and talk about something that kind of traverses both the surgical world and the critical care world. Because, like we said earlier, you never know who's going to come through those doors. You have to be prepared um, to handle anything. And I know I learned a lot because where I practice, you know, burn patients are not very common for us. So this was definitely educational for me. Yeah, I hope everybody was able to get something out of this. And, you know, next time, it's going to be my podcast for real. All right. I think that's uh, our cue to end it. Um, 
we'll see about that. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Remember to follow me on Instagram at PoemCurt101 for more educational content. And if anyone has any questions or comments, you can always email me at PoemCurt101 at gmail.com. Remember, the podcast can be heard on Apple, Spotify, Google, as well as Anchor. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time.